Good morning, everybody. Claire, thank you so much for sharing. And John, this was the mildest summer on record. <laughs> You're in trouble next year, wherever you are. <clears throat> this morning, we continue our sermon series. Adventure versus anxiety as we continue to spend time in the classic story of David versus Goliath. The premise of this sermon series is based on, those of you who've been around the last couple of weeks, you have heard this, it's based on a book from a now deceased author, Edmund Friedman, who wrote A Failure to Nerve. Adventure and anxiety, they're not opposed to one another. In fact, it's best when they commingle together. However, in this sermon series, what we really are focusing on is in the whole area of decision-making. So in the area of our decisions and the decisions that we make, what is driving our decisions? Are we making our decisions more from a posture of adventure or from a posture of anxiety? That's the question that we are holding before us as we journey together through this sermon series. This morning's scripture introduces us to the first recorded words by David in the Bible. You're going to hear in a minute the first things recorded that he said. The same David who will eventually become the greatest king in all of Israel's history. He reigned 1,000 years before the, the time of Jesus, the Messiah, who will come from the lineage of David. A bit of context, the book of 1 Samuel covers a time of significant political change. The nation of Israel has longed for a king. They have begged for a king, and they have received a king, King Saul. The whole reason they want a king is for the king to fight their battles for them and to provide security. The people felt they needed a king because of the threat from their enemies and of all of the enemies that Israel had. The enemy that posed the biggest threat to Israel's life was the Philistines. So now we're going to step into the story. David arrives at the camp as a naive outsider, able to see and to hear with fresh eyes and fresh ears. The fear-paralyzed troops are stuck. They can see no way out of the impasse posed by Goliath. The Philistine challenge has gone unanswered for 40 days at this point. David arrives just as the two armies are taking their positions on opposite sides of the valley and war cries are spilling and splitting the air. 1 Samuel chapter 17, this will be verses 20 through 31 if you have your Bible with you. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army, army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the Israelites, when they saw the man, 
fled from him and were very much afraid. The Israelites said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him and will give him the daughter and make his family free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes, takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done for the man who kills him. His eldest brother, Eliab, heard him talking to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down just to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? It was only a question. He turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. An old fable has been passed down from generations about an elderly man who was traveling with a donkey and a boy. As they walked through a village, the man was leading the donkey and the boy was walking behind. The townspeople said that the old man was a fool for not riding. So to please them, he climbed up on the animal's back. When they came to the next village, the people saw the old man and they said that the old man was cruel to let the little boy walk behind the donkey while he enjoyed the ride. So to please them, he got off the donkey, he got off the animal's back, and he set the boy on the animal and they continued on their way until they arrived to the third village. <clears throat> When they arrived to the third village, people accused the child of being lazy for making the old man walk. And the suggestion was that they both ride on the animal, which is what they did. When they arrived to the fourth village, the townspeople were indignant at the cruelty to the donkey because he was made to carry two people. The frustrated man was last seen carrying the donkey down the road. How do we make our decisions? 
As we continue to sit with this wonder, wonderful underdog story that appeals to the underdog in all of this, all of us, and we're using the same chunk of scripture week after week from 1 Samuel 17, but we're trying to look at it from different vantage points. And this morning, the invitation is for us to try to get inside young David's head. Imagine, if you will, some of the voices inside him. First, he's got the voice of his father, Jesse. He is the eighth son of Jesse who obediently brings rations from home, bread and, and cheese for the, the commanding officers of the brothers. This family is very supportive of what's going on. The three eldest sons are in the service of King Saul. I imagine that... Dad Jesse told David to be careful. So David arrives with the voice of Jesse in his head, also with a voice from his dad saying, you need to bring back some stories about what's going on. Not only does he have the voice of his dad in his head, but he also has the voice of his eldest brother, Eliab, in his head. Eliab is angry and overreacts. He questions David's character and motivation. This part of the scripture is so very easy to picture for all of us who have siblings, which is about 82% of our population, I learned. Firstborn, ultra-responsible Eliab. He accuses his little brother of abandoning his responsibility with the sheep. He accuses him of boyish voyeurism, saying you just showed up in order to gawk at the battle. We know that David has not abandoned his sheep. He has come at his father's bidding. We also know that his heart is not evil. He is a man after God's own heart. There are echoes from the story of Joseph and Joseph's brother in what David now encounters. But young David will not be put off. Like all little brothers, he says, in effect, who asked you? <laughs> and he turns away from his big brother and he finds someone else to ask the question. Those closest to us who know us best are sometimes some of the most critical voices that we carry. So he's got in his head the voice from his dad. He has in his head the voice from his eldest brother. Goliath begins his daily rant just as David appears, arrives with the care package. Surely the voice and the taunt of Goliath is ringing in his ears. He also, everywhere he looks, sees Israelite men who are very much afraid. Everywhere he looks, there is fear and retreat. David, had mul he has multiple voices in his head from others. He could be lured by a desire to please the king and to impress the soldiers. The criticism of his brother might cause him to shrink. All of these voices are anxiety-driven because actions are driven by the approval or the disapproval of others. Friends, who are the voices in your life who hold the most weight? Is people-pleasing your primary narrative? 
with whatever obstacle you now face, I wonder if you are able to identify the anxiety-driven voices currently in your head from others. I wonder if I can identify those voices for myself. Malcolm Gladwell's best-selling book, Blink. It explores the topic of decision-making and the manners by which we arrive at certain decisions. We are decision-making creatures. It's part of what it means to be human. Human who are humans who are created in the image of God. But the problem is we don't always know why we make certain decisions and how to learn how to make better ones in the future. One of the main premises of Gladwell's book is that we can make better decisions by cutting out the clutter and focusing on the right information. Cutting out the clutter and focusing on the right information. He points to data overload and how it causes our brains to shut down and to make rash decisions just to be able to make a decision. It's what happens anytime you go to the cheesecake factory <laughs> and try to order from a 20 plus page menu. An intriguing concept from Blink is the idea of thin slicing. Thin slicing. This is Gladwell's term for that ability to make a rapid judgment on a small amount of data. It's the ability to zero in on what really matters. Thin slicing. Zeroing in on what really matters. Brothers and sisters, one important way that we seek wisdom is to have the right kind of people around us helping us to make the best decisions. The practice of real community, the practice of authentic community, where people walk beside each other side by side and we live lives together, supporting each other, learning and growing together as we grow in Christ's way, this enables us to make better decisions. This week, I was at an annual meeting with my company of pastors. I've shared about this group with some of you before. It is a pastoral vocational formation group that I have journeyed with since 2007. So we are now on a nine-year journey together. They are very important in my life. We meet once a year. It's, it's a sweet time of prayer and study and reflection. I am always so grateful to spend time with these companions. I found myself this week as I was with them retracing our steps and doing the work of remembering as we now have quite a bit of journey together, as we shared our days together. Two of the members of this group, George and Tina, they were with me during a very important part, a very important time of decision-making and discernment in my life after I graduated from seminary in 2006. It was early 2007, and I had begun conversations with churches as to where I would go and serve after leaving Southern California. In time, the decision whittled down. It pared down to two opportunities, both which seemed like really good fits to me. One of those in Austin, Texas, the other in Jacksonville, Florida. It was a difficult decision. 
So to help me with that decision, what I decided to do was I got a big roll of paper. I opened up this big roll of paper, and I actually still have this in my closet. I pulled it out this week, and I measured it. It's seven feet long. I have a seven-foot scroll of paper with two columns on it. It's got an Austin column. It has a Jacksonville column. And for seven feet, I have data represented for both of those two churches. Anything from the population of the city to the high temperature in July to the median house prices to the number of worship services, Austin did not fare very well with any of those, by the way. (laughs) To what I knew about the presbytery, to what I knew about the staff, to major job descriptions, to congregational strengths and weaknesses. The list just went on and on. And no, somebody already asked me at the end of another service, you cannot see that scroll. (laughs) I had many conversation partners during that time. However, I was beginning to feel a lot of anxiety. As I looked at that scroll and that seven fifth, the seven feet of information in two places that I had really grown to care about, two places that seemed like a really good fit. And the reason I was beginning to experience a lot of anxiety was because of competing voices in my head vowing for allegiance all from people I cared about. I had two committees who in their discernment really felt like I was to come and to serve with them. Many of my friends in California were pulling for Austin because it's an easier flight from the West Coast. My Florida family very much liked the idea of Jacksonville. Austin felt right. But I have to tell you that one of the biggest yearnings and desires and prayers that I had at that time is that I would be within a two-hour drive to a family member or a friend, and I knew absolutely no one in the state of Texas. And you need to know that saying yes to the nation of Texas can feel very daunting when you are on the outside and you have absolutely no relationship or experience with anyone in this state. It was George, and it was Tina, and it was Sophie, who very much functioned as spiritual directors in my life, helping me to discern the voice of God. They did a whole lot of listening. They asked a lot of great questions, and they prayed for me, and they prayed with me, and they helped me to pay attention to the leading of the Spirit and ultimately to listen first and foremost to the voice of God and not to all of those voices competing in my head. We live in a culture of individualism. How very important it is to have community to make decisions with us in times of life, big decisions and small decisions, and discover what God is doing in our midst. In the valley of Elah, David demonstrates the ability to thin slice. 
zeroing in on what really matters when he assesses the situation and he asks, doesn't having a living God make a difference in all of this? Doesn't having a living God make a difference in all of this? For in addition to all the other voices in his head, David also arrived that day with another narrative in his head. And that was the narrative that he had lived as a shepherd, as one who listens to the voice of God. For up to now, everyone had been dealing with what they felt was a military problem. It was the young shepherd, David, who raised the larger theological issue. David introduces a new factor into the action, the living God. David brings a whole new worldview. He sees what the rest of Israel does not, that the offense of a living God opens up a whole new set of resources. Israel is acting as if God is irrelevant to the battle. A living God gives a whole new view of things. As pastor and author Eugene Peterson notes, the only person fully in touch with reality that day in the Valley of Elah was David. Reality is mostly made up of what we cannot see. The human life is mostly a matter of what never gets reported in the newspapers, only a God-saturated as opposed to a Goliath-saturated mind can account for what made holy history that day in the Valley of Elah. Friends, this is the belief that is, if God is for us, then who can be against us? We've heard the voices of criticism and bullying and fear. David provides the voice of faith. Is there a living God in Israel? Is there a living God, period? Is there a working power and governance outside the scope of armies? David is prepared to act as if it were so. The question is, how about us? In just a few moments, we are going to come to the Lord's table. And today is actually World Communion Sunday. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's be mindful of our Christian brothers and sisters of many cultures and, and cultures worldwide. It's an opportunity for us to recommit ourselves to the life of rightness with God and to the life of rightness with others. But friends, before we come to the table, I would really like to remind you of how God sees you. Because I have been reminded this week in most every conversation that I have had with people the last couple of days that some of the loudest voices in our heads are very accusatory. And they are overshadowing God's perspective. So if you need to hear this today, before we come to the table, if you are one whose negative self-talk is dominating the landscape of your mind, if you are living with the lingering power of shame and guilt and regret, 
for all of us to be reminded because the accuser of the brethren would like nothing more than for us to feel defeated. I remind us today that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. We are created by God and for God. And nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for you is unconditional and it is constant and it is forever. And no sin or past mistake. Anything that has happened in the past, anything that will happen in the future, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of Christ our Lord. As a people of faith, we are called to play to the audience of one. Zero in on what really matters. God has called us, invited us to participate in this story, to participate in the great adventure of life. Christ is with us. So friends, whatever obstacle you now face or will face in the days ahead, trust that the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the maker of heaven and earth, that he is not dormant, that he is the living God and he will forever act and that changes everything. So carry that with you as you now come to the table and carry that back out with you as we leave this place today and to go to love and to serve. But first, would you pray with me? Oh God, we bow before you as a people deeply in need of Jesus and deeply in need of grace. Oh Lord, we pray that you will be our vision, be our wisdom, first and foremost in our heart. Bless us with encouragement. Bless us with hope. Generous God, thank you for hosting us at your table today. We are humble, grateful guests. And we receive what you offer us with joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, we make this prayer and all of God's people together we say, amen.